Well, as we prepare our, our hearts to celebrate the Lord's table, I'd like this morning for us to consider uh, a review or an overview of communion. That is a summary of scripture, both from a biblical and a historical point of view. I want to do a fly-by look at several aspects of communion, and this is where our title for this morning comes from, The Foundation of the Table. And to prepare, I'd like to go back to the first historical reference to communion, which is in Exodus chapter 12. So if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1. And as you turn, I want to read for you the very familiar text that we often share at communion in 1 Corinthians 11. And we do this each morning, so importantly, when we celebrate the table and as I read these words from 1 Corinthians, and you're there in, in Exodus 12, I want you to think carefully about the words. They're so familiar to us that sometimes we don't stop and consider. And I want you to really ponder what Paul says in this vital text, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Just consider a few points from that text. Clearly, this is a remembrance, as verse 24 said, a, a memorial remembrance of, Christ, of what Christ has done. And what are we remembering? That is his once for all finished sacrifice as memorialized in the bread and the juice, symbolizing his body and his blood. And in addition to remembrance, it is very importantly a proclamation. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We are proclaiming that substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And beloved, this is key to our understanding, and to our participation in the table. Because that one death alone paid the price and removed our sin from us. All right, with that foundation, let's go back to the book of Exodus and Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1. 
and to our first point, which I've titled The Precursor. The Precursor. And before we go to that text, let's address why we're here. The Lord's Supper, of course, was instituted during the Passover. In fact, it was the final official Passover celebration, as our pastor explains to us faithfully as we participate in the table. And at that Last Supper, as we call it, Jesus announced the inauguration of a new covenant. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant was completed and finished at Jesus' death on the cross. The Mosaic covenant was complete and fulfilled. And in his shed blood was the institution of that new covenant. That which is proclaimed in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and even in Daniel. And the, he concludes for all time at that point the Passover because his crucifixion ends it. And the Lord's Supper then arose, if you will, out of the ashes of the Passover. So let's look at our text in Exodus chapter 12 and consider what's shown to us here. Exodus 12 and 1, if you'd follow along in your Bibles. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are to each one take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old, and you may take it from sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Twilight is literally between the two evenings. In the Jewish reckoning of time and days, the new day began in the evening. And they spoke about two evenings, one where the sun went down below the horizon and a second evening where darkness came. And it is between those that Jesus and that the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed in between those two evenings. Those dates of the 10th and the 14th of the month being very, very important as we consider the Lord's timetable in the Passion Week. So continuing on then in verse 7, Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner. With your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments 
I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Clearly, we see the parallels here between the Lord's table, Jesus' crucifixion, and the Passover. The Jesus' death is clearly indicative of what was foretold during that Passover. In fact, Puritan Richard Vines notes that Jesus put a new superscription or signification upon the old metal. In other words, he retitled, he, he reconstructed, and he reassigned the old sacrifice. Jesus' death fulfilled the Passover. Christ's death was represented by the Lamb. Indeed, throughout Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. We see in John 1.29, when Jesus came to be baptized, John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Revelation 5.6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. Well, how does that happen? How does a lamb who has been slain stand? Because of course it has been restored to life and this is the picture of the resurrected Christ. That Jesus Christ lives and that he will live eternally in that bodily flesh which God raised up. Notice another aspect of the Passover. The blood of the sacrificed lamb was to be put on the two doorposts and the lintels. That is the two side pieces and the header over the door. But no blood was to be put on the threshold, on the, the bottom of the door. Why is that? Do you ever think about that? These are some of the questions that run through my puny mind. I mean, why not all the way around? That seems to be the natural program. Just coat the entire frame. I mean, that's, a, that's my natural inclination. More has got to be better. You know, the Peter principle, not my feet, Lord, but wash all of me if we're going to do this. Well, the reason is because of Hebrews 10, 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who trampled underfoot the Son of God? This, of course, is a, a metaphorical reference in Hebrews to living lives in sin and therein trampling underfoot the blood of the Lord. But the same aspect applied to the Passover. We also know that not a bone of the lamb was to be broken. And nor was one bone of our Lord broken, as John 19, 36 confirms. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And therein John is quoting from Exodus 12, 46, and also from Psalm 34, 20. Continuing on a few verses later in Exodus 12 and verse 25, we read, when you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall observe the right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt. When he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshiped. And what happened here? 
We'll look ahead to verse 29 of Exodus 12 with me. Where we read in Exodus 12, 29. Now it came about at midnight. That the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne. To the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel and go worship the Lord as you have said, take both your flocks and also your herds as you have said and go and bless me also. The Lord himself smote the land of Egypt just like he said. Just like he said there was a great cry. And this is what he proclaimed earlier in Exodus eleven six. Moreover there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt. Such as there has not been before. And such as shall never be again. Consider the magnitude of what happened in Egypt that night. Something that has never been seen. Something that never will occur in the land again. And consider that for a moment. Do you think God takes judgment seriously? Consider the text that we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And our need to judge ourselves or to be judged. And is his judgment severe? It's like nothing we can imagine. Do you see why we warn you so strongly against the danger of participating in any way in any sin? God is serious about this thing. It isn't a a no biggie. No, it's a real biggie. The wrath of God is nothing you want to mess with. And God passes over the homes of the Israelites and he spares them from his wrath. And what happens at the Lord's Supper? We remember the Lord's death and proclaim it until he comes. And why do we do this, beloved? Because of the joy, because of the hope, because we recognize that our sins are forgiven. God's wrath is removed from us. It is taken away and gone. And it is so others can realize this vital truth. Because for those who accept Jesus Christ as Savior, He passes over your sins. But only those that accept and know Christ as Savior. The sin which you commit, the sin which I commit, Jesus bore on His body on the tree. But beloved, you have to bring that sin to Him. The sin which you commit must be brought before the throne of grace. You have to come to him for forgiveness. You have to respond to the quickening of the Holy Spirit. You have to respond to the guilt of your consciences because that is the work of the Spirit of God in your life, convicting you of your sin. And you have to bring that to Jesus in confession and repent of that sin and turn away from that sin and turn to God. And you have to do it every day. 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you have to do this not just daily, but throughout the day, because how often do we sin? All the time. 
And we can't just say, oh, well, I'll pray tonight and I'll take that to the Lord later. Or I'll pray tomorrow morning in my regular confession time and I'll take care of it then. No, we have to keep short accounts with the Lord. We have to be bringing this before him throughout the day. As you know your sin, you have to bring it to the throne. And if you think you don't sin, then come and see me. I once, you know, uh, made that offer to the first church that I pastored and a man came up and he said, you know, I don't sin, pastor. And I said, or he goes, I don't sin some days. I have, I have whole days. I go, that's, and I said, great, come and spend a day with me and I bet we will find a sin that you do during that day. You know, he never came and saw me. And I think I know why. Because he sins each day, just like I sin each day, just like you sin every day. And for those who say they are spiritually mature and no longer sin, they are liars and the truth is not in them, as 1 John 2, 4 says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory, as Paul tells us in Romans 6, 23. But we must take it to the Lord in prayer. We have a role in this too. We don't just sit back and sin away. Oh, God's grace is sufficient. I can just live however I want. I can continue in sin. That's the free grace movement. And it is theologically massively wrong. Sin is something we must take seriously. We can't just say, oh, God's grace is enough. Jesus covered it at the cross. Did he? Yes. But should you take advantage of it? Absolutely not. Paul says in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May genoita, one of the strongest Greek negations is that next phrase. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Were the Israelites without sin? No. Are you and I without sin? No. But God in Christ Jesus has passed over that sin. That is, if we are faithful to confess it. And this is the point of the Lord's Supper, to proclaim his death. And in proclaiming to remember his sacrifice and your role in confessing that sin. And that takes us from the Old Testament to the New. And if you turn with me to Acts chapter 2 as we consider our second point, the past church. The past church in Acts 2 and verse 42. Now we've already read the testimony of the Lord. That is what he did. And what he said when he instituted the Lord's Supper. But how did the church receive it? Pastors just taught on this recently. And so I know you know it well. But what was the response to this ordinance, to this command? The response was overwhelming. We often looked at this text to understand what is the purpose of the church? What are we corporately as a body to be about? And in these verses in Acts 2, 42 to 47, we see just what that is. And Paul says and writes in Acts 2, 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Clearly, this is an amazing response. It is one of great faithfulness. And we see this fourfold emphasis, the, the teaching of the scriptures, the, the fellowship of the church, the celebration of the Lord's table, and to prayer. They're constantly doing these four elements. And as they're eating and partaking and taking meals together corporately because they had protection when they were together because Rome was none too happy about this Christian movement. And of course, neither were the Jews. And so as they take their meals together, they would celebrate the Lord's table as they would do so. And they're constantly doing this, constantly teaching and encouraging each other, constantly fellowshipping. Was it not a sweet fellowship time that we had in between our songs, brief as it was? And when we continue our discussion and consider the past church, I want you to turn ahead with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The text that I read earlier on the communion passage, 1 Corinthians 11, only we're going to back up to verse 17. You see, the church in Acts 2 was doing wonderfully, but we see that this wasn't the universal situation. We only have to look ahead to 1 Corinthians 11 and that text to see Paul is none too happy with the church at Corinth. They are completely degrading the Lord's table. Let's look at that text. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. 1 Corinthians 11 and 17. But in giving this instruction, Paul writes, I do not praise you because you have come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that, there, that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat or drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So shortly thereafter, they're coming together and, and I want to get to that table before anybody else. I want to get to that potluck feed. You know, and I, I, I've been guilty of this. I remember the potluck in Mobile, Alabama and that dear lady's lime cake that, you know, if you didn't get there early, it was gone. And I realized, you know, Scott, you got to step back several reasons. But this is exactly the reality of the error that was happening only manifested, not only eating and jumping in front of one another, but being drunk. And Paul's like, this is just incredible. How can you be doing this? This excessive food, ignoring the needs of others, selfish eating, drunkenness, and a time of division when we're to be coming together. Coming together to fellowship, to pray, to read and teach and hear the word of God. 
Paul chastises them mightily for this aberrance. He is appalled at their lack of reverence. The Lord's table was one of two sacred acts that Jesus commanded both baptism and the Lord's table. And within 20 years of his death, it's being abused. And so Paul directs them back to a right understanding. And you might say, well, Scott, that's not an issue that we have. We don't participate in the Lord's table like that. I'm not jumping in front of anybody in the potluck line and and I'm not getting drunk. And that's good. But we too can come to this table without a proper reverence. Without properly considering and confessing. Without recognizing the necessity of judging ourselves. And the warning that those who do so wrongly, who do not judge themselves, eat and drink condemnation to themselves. And for this reason, many of you are weak and sick and some sleep or are dead. So to consider more as we recognize the early church, let's go to our third point in the foundation of the table, which I've titled the perverted church. And for this, we move outside the Bible, past the close of the canon at the end of Revelation, which occurred in about AD 90, and we go to the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church. This occurred in 341 AD, and it was not a religious movement. It was a, an effort to try to recapture the crumbling Roman Empire by Constantine. He's losing ground militarily by the Vikings and Nords and others that are attacking on all sides. And he has this great idea, okay, we're going to make a state church. And now we're going to unite everybody under the state church. Because not only is he losing militarily, he's losing monetarily. And of course, that was a critical element. And he's looking for a way to save it and decides it's through this state religion. And so with that, Roman Catholicism was born. And the system was a way to bring citizens into political unity through religious practices or better, through religious oppression. Because military oppression was failing as in every age, a strong-arm dictator can only last so long. And again, it was about money. It was about bringing people into this church. We're going to baptize everyone and give them a certificate of baptism, not to congratulate them on becoming part of church and Christ, but so that we can come back and tax them because now we have a register of how many people are in the home. And when I show up to the door and the tax keeper comes, we better have one person for each one I see. And otherwise, we will give you a certificate of divorce and tax you further. So in order to establish the church as power and to place people under its authority, they began to proclaim a work work system of righteousness. This was the seven sacraments through which salvation was earned. Clearly contrary to scripture in Ephesians 2. And if you didn't obey all of these sacraments... And the church, then you were condemned to hell by the church. This period of the early Middle Ages was a pretty abhorrent time to live. Things were pretty miserable. And people didn't like the thought of things being actually worse if the church condemned me to hell. So fearful of a life worse than they had, the people are duped into submission a submission that has existed to this day for millions of people. One of these sacraments was the Mass. 
a perversion of the Lord's Supper. Originally instituted around 500 AD, it was a reenactment of the sacrifice of Jesus. Over time, it grew in importance, and around 1200 AD, the church moved from an example to a literal sacrifice. They call this transubstantiation. The Pope decided that the Mass was a true and real sacrifice. A real calling down of Jesus Christ to re-sacrifice each time the Mass is celebrated. This is an abominable heresy. Catholics say, and in all of their documents since that time, it has been a foundational component that says the Mass is the origin and summit of faith. The Mass is the origin and summit of faith. Let me ask you, what is the origin of your faith? Is it a cup and bread? And a glass? No, I don't think so. Our faith must be in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Or it isn't true saving faith. But the Catholic Mass believes they actually transfer the plain elements of blood and wine into the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this they call transubstantiation. That is the transmutation of the elements of bread and wine into the physical body and blood of Christ. The priest has the power to call Christ down through the Mass Tens of thousands of times each week around the world, and they re-sacrifice Christ. Does this sound contrary to Scripture? Oh boy. In texts like Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Did you hear that? Once For all. Romans 6.10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. 1 Peter 3.8. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Once for all. And there are many more. Hebrews 9.11-14. Hebrews 924 to 28, just to name a couple. Tens of thousands of times each week? Absolutely not. The process is nothing short of sorcery. The way in which the priest is allegedly able to turn elements of bread and wine into body and blood and that of Christ. They have a series of exact procedures they must follow. So that the priest can command Christ to come back into the elements. Listen to Dr. MacArthur's description of these events of the priest. 
He has to make the sign of the cross 16 times. He has to turn towards the congregation six times. Lift lift his eyes to heaven 11 times. Kiss the altar eight times. Fold his hands four times. Strike his breast 10 times. Bow his head 21 times. Genuflect eight times. Bow his shoulder seven times. Bless the altar with the sign of the cross 30 times. Lay his hands flat on the altar 29 times. Pray secretly 11 times pray aloud 13 times take the bread and wine and turn it into the body and blood of Christ cover and uncover the chalice 10 times go to and fro 20 times and in addition perform numerous other acts and turns in exactly the right sequence what in the world is he doing All this extended pageant is designed, writes Bettner, to reenact the experience of Christ from the Last Supper in the upper room, through the agony in the garden, through the betrayal, through the trial, through the crucifixion, through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That's why all the motion's going on. Some kind of dramatization. His bowing and genuflections are imitations of Christ in his agony and suffering. And if the priests forget one element of the drama, he commits a sin, technically invalidates the mass. So you've got to be trained to do this and you've got to, be, got to have a good memory. Who could count all those? What do you do? What you do is you go through it. It's like a routine until you get it down, end quote. Does this sound absurd to you? Well, it is. But worse yet, when they're done, once they've consecrated the host, and that's what they call it, they worship it as God. This is idolatry. It's absurd. It's an abomination. And it's all done in Latin, so no one knows what they're saying. To keep people from questioning it, they threaten eternity in hell. So even though it was absurd, no one dared question it. So the memorial remembrance of the most important event in history was turned into an idolatrous catastrophe. Things were not good in Corinth, but they were correctable. The Catholic Church is incorrigible. It is a train wreck. And this is just one of the many heresies in the Roman Catholic Church. But it caused... What came next? And so now we fast forward several hundred years to the Reformation and to our fourth point, the proper church. The time of Wycliffe and Huss and Luther and Calvin. These men rejected the mass. The major contention for each of them with Rome and the Roman Catholic Church was over the mass. They realized the constant violations of scripture, the atrocities of idolatry, the horror of the hedonistic practices and the sickness of the sacrament and the tragedy of transubstantiation. And these men rebelled. John Wycliffe was the morning star of the Reformation. He was an English lay preacher in the late 1300s. He was one of the first to speak out against the mass. And he said there's no physical presence of Christ that exists in the mass. And God's word clearly shows this. Just what we've already seen. John Huss who followed Wycliffe made great accusations against the Romish church. Huss lived in Prague now modern-day Czechoslovakia then Bohemia in the late 13 and early 1400s. Huss called the Pope the Antichrist. He also vehemently rejected the Mass 
and wrote definitively about it. John Huss was burned at the stake, singing as he went, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, have mercy upon me. In England, over 300 people were burned at the stake, most of them over the mass, men and women. This around 1600 as they were burned by Bloody Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, and all because they rejected the mass. Two of acclaim were Dr. Ridley and Master Latimer. Here are three charges against them as written by the church. Listen carefully to the connection of our text in 1 Corinthians 11 and also to the horrors of the Catholic Mass. Number one, we do object to thee, Nicholas Ridley, and thee, Hugh Latimer, jointly and severally, that thou hast affirmed and openly defended and maintained that the true and natural body of Christ after the consecration of the priest, is not really present in the sacrament of the altar. Two, that thou hast publicly affirmed and defended that in the sacrament of the altar remaineth still the substance of bread and wine. Three, that thou hast openly affirmed and obstinately maintained that in the mass is no propitiatory sacrifice for the quick and the dead, completely denying the mass and its horrific elements about bringing Christ into the elements of bread and wine, but also denying that there is any satisfaction for God's wrath in those that engage in such a process and that they remain in their sin. Both men agreed to the charges. They were sought to recant for their preaching on the same, and they would not. Let me read you the last words of their lives from Fox's book of Martyr. Incontinently they were commanded to make them ready, which they with all meekness obeyed. Master Ridley took his gown and his tippet and gave it to his brother-in-law, Master Shipside. Some others of his apparel that was little worth, he gave away, others the bailiffs took. He gave away besides divers other small things to gentlemen standing by, pitifully weeping as to Sir Henry Leah, a new groat, and to the divers of my Lord William's gentlemen, some napkins, some nutmeg, and raises of ginger, ginger, his dial and such other things as he had about him, to everyone that stood next to him, some plucked the points off his hose, happy was he that might get any rag of him. Master Latimer very quietly suffered his keeper to pull off his hose and his other array, which was very simple. Being stripped into his shroud, he seemed a comely a person as there were there present and as one should see. And whereas in his clothes he appeared a withered and crooked old man, he now stood bolt upright as comely a father as one might lightly behold. Master Ridley held up his hand and said, O heavenly Father, I give unto thee most heartily thanks for that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, take mercy upon this realm of England and deliver the same from all her enemies. Then the smith took a chain of iron and brought the same about both Dr. Ridley's and Master Latimer's middles. 
And as he was knocking in a staple, Dr. Ridley took the chain in his hand and shaked the same. And looking aside to the smith said, good fellow, knock it in hard for the flesh will have his course. Then his brother did bring him gunpowder in a bag and would have tied the same about his neck. Master Ridley asked what it was. His brother said, gunpowder. Then said he, I take it to be sent of God. Therefore, I will receive it as sent of him. And have you any, said he, for my brother, meaning Master Latimer? Yea, sir, that I have, quoth his brother. Then give it unto him, said he. Be time, lest ye come too late. So his brother went and carried off the same gunpowder under Master Latimer. Then they brought a faggot kindled by the fire and laid the same down at Dr. Ridley's feet, to whom Master Latimer spake in this manner. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. When Dr. Ridley saw the fire flaming up toward him, he cried with a wonderful loud voice, Lord, Lord, receive my spirit. Master Latimer crying as vehemently on the other side, O Father of heaven, receive my soul. Received the flame as it were embracing of it. After that, he had his face stroked with his hands and as it were bathed them in a little in the fire. He soon died with very little or no pain. I share all of this with you so that you may ponder more fully what we do when we come to this table. When we come to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we come to be a testimony, to be a witness both to ourselves and to one another in this body. The Greek word for witness is martus and is where we get our English word martyr. One who will suffer a violent death to stand for their faith in Christ. All of it to be a witness, to proclaim something unseen in a ceremony. This makes very little sense in our culture. In our culture, we expect results from our actions. And if there's no immediate benefit, why do we do it? This is the mindset of Western culture. Do what is necessary, gain the benefit received, and move on. If there is no benefit, abandon the process. So a ritual like the Lord's table or like baptism makes little sense because it has no immediate perceived results. And I fear we don't give it its due. We can become like the Corinthians, eating and drinking with no consideration. We can become like the Catholics, blindly following a ritual we barely even stop to consider. But this ordinance has tremendous import, monumental impact, one of two ordinances we are commanded to perform. This does have great significance. And by considering God's word and what has happened historically, I hope that you are better prepared, better able to consider what we do, to consider the importance of this and what men and women have stood and died for because of the vital nature of this table and more so to consider your command 
That is to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We come to this table to remember and to proclaim. To proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and to do our part. That is to confess our sins, to repent and turn from them and to change, to turn away from sin and to turn towards God. And that is what we must focus on as we prepare our hearts for this morning. And what I would like to ask you to do this morning in the quietness of your heart, to pray and to remember all of these details, to ask yourselves about your conviction and your commitment to these important aspects of celebrating and remembering Christ's death. And to consider what is your focus and what is your resolve to carry forth in the stead of men and women who have been called to die for their faith. For such could come to our country. Such could come to our church. And are we prepared to stand in the greatest of adversities to proclaim that Jesus is my Lord and that he has died for my sin and for yours? I'd ask you to take some time in the quietness of your heart as we prepare to partake, to consider and to confess these things. Glorious Father, as we come before you at this sacred time to remember what your Son has done, to bring this memorial remembrance to you, to seek to honor you and your command to us to obey and to consider, to reflect, to understand the importance of what it means to live our lives before the cross, to live our lives in the face of this world that would stand against everything that is true and right and honorable to you. To be those who are willing, no matter the price, to proclaim that Jesus is our Lord. Forgive us, Father. We know that we fall short. We are sinners. We are sinners, Father, by nature. We are sinners by choice. We are sinners in our very flesh. And even in the things that we do not know, Lord, at times we sin. Forgive us for these things. Strengthen us that we might recognize and that we might resolve to live lives that were honoring to you, that were holy and blameless. Not for our sake, Father, but for yours so that others might see how glorious and beautiful and what a great God you are in what you have done. As we partake today of these elements, Lord, help us to remember these things and be glorified in all of them, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name.